Fuller, welcome to Scratching the Surface. Over the last few years, I have grown increasingly frustrated with the term human-centered design. On one hand, it seemed to reinforce a human supremacy view of the world while ignoring all the other non-human life around it. I've wondered what something like ecology-centered design, for example, might look like, or if that is some sort of better goal for us to work towards. On the other hand, I've come to believe that a lot of what we call human-centered isn't really human-centered at all, but rather corporation-centered, designed for increasing profits and maximizing attention. I found myself reflecting on these ideas often while reading James Bridle's fascinating new book, Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, and the Search for Planetary Intelligence. James' book is not about design, necessarily. I'm not sure they ever even use the term human-centered in the text, but it speaks brilliantly and articulately on the nature of intelligence in the more-than-human world. In the book, James takes us on a wide-ranging tour of the natural world to redefine intelligence, arguing that our current definitions are limited and therefore also limiting our understandings of technology, artificial intelligence, and the built world at large. Like my own thinking on corporation-centered design, for example, James argues that much of what we call artificial intelligence can be seen as a type of corporate intelligence that prioritizes the bottom line, maximizing profits, and markets over all else. It's one of my favorite books of the year. I've been following James's work for the better part of a decade. They are an artist, a writer, and a technologist whose work explores technology, infrastructure, networks, and politics. Their last book, The New Dark Age, is a book that broadly is about the internet and the increasingly complex networks that surround us. They've exhibited artworks around the world and has written for publications like Wired, The Atlantic, and The Guardian. James is an artist and a thinker who I've admired for years, and after reading Ways of Being, wanted to have them on the show to talk through both the ideas in the book as well as their practice generally. We also talk about these thoughts on human-centered design. We talk about design fictions and why they see their work as being primarily about agency. It's an inspiring, fascinating, and profound conversation. As always, links from the references we talk about in this episode are available at scratchingthesurface.com. And if you like the show and want to support its ongoing development, you can join us on Patreon for as low as $3 a month. Patrons help keep the show going and get all sorts of bonus content each month. We really couldn't do it without you. Thank you for listening. And here is my conversation with James Bridle. ways of being mm-hmm. but I, I have a question before that where I want to sort of just contextualize it a little bit I was listening to an interview that you gave right after the book came out and you said that you pitched this to your publishers as a book about intelligence um, you're interested in this idea of intelligence and then in the writing process you sort of had this challenge in defining intelligence and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about where that interest came from or what that sort of initial impulse to Think about this idea of intelligence. What was the sort of driving, animating force when you started this project? So in the last few years, I've made a few projects about artificial intelligence. And like pretty much everyone else, I've been aware of this sort of growing cultural fascination with AI. Um, it's, yeah. uh, I mean, it's been around for a very long time. Um, it's a really like powerful, but mostly science fictional 
concept um but it's but it's now gone very very much mainstream um and like a lot of the subjects around technology i tend to be very interested in um it's um it's both the popular discussion of it is quite divorced from like the actual mechanics of the technology um so when people talk about ai it's often quite hard or it takes a while to figure out are they talking about an actually existing software that we have and use or are they talking about some kind of science fiction idea of this thing um and i'm always interested in that difference and i'm also always interested in what happens when things that have previously been science fiction um uh sort of crash into real life and become boring almost instantly and 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 what what sort of discussions happen around that who decides what this thing actually is when it becomes real um this happened a lot with projects i did that are related to the ai question around self-driving cars um this kind of strange moment when something we've been waiting for for so long is suddenly real but not always quite in the way that we expected um and so i had this fascination with ai and at the same time i was you know I found myself reading and researching a huge amount about non-human intelligence and uh, and the incredible discoveries or kind of realizations is a better way to put it of the um, the abilities of non-humans that really challenge our ideas about what intelligence is and the, the centrality of human intelligence. And it was the really the coming together of those two things. Um, the, on, on the one hand, the, the emergence of things that are starting to look quite seriously like intelligence in machines though that's highly questionable and debatable what that actually means um and at the same time this growing awareness of 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 intelligence being something not unique to humans and in fact something you know quite different again to how we commonly think about it and i wanted to i wanted to bring those things together and in order to do so it meant i had to had to think and understand a lot more about intelligence itself and so that was how i originally framed the book and what a lot of the book is about um, though perhaps we can talk about this it's, it's not necessarily what i came to realize as being the most important thing can you tell that's exactly what my next question was going to be because i think i mean the book is about intel there is that that sort of strand there and you you sort of identify very early two sort of uh theses that i think you know kind of spread across the range of of research that you do in the book one is that our ideas of computational intelligence are actually very limiting um and and, I, and that to me read very much as a continuation of thinking you were doing in, in your last book, New Dark Age. But then this other idea is that often what we mean when we talk about intelligence is just the things that humans do, the way that humans think. Can you sort of talk about how those insights helped evolve this book and sort of what it became? Yeah, again, a bit like a bit like my previous answer. There's kind of two two forks to that that kind of came together to produce this work. Um, the first of the first of which is is that you know, I set out to write a book about intelligence. Promised my publisher I'd do that. Wanted to do that, and so I realised at some point I would have to, you know, be quite clear about what I meant when I was talking about intelligence. So I read loads of other stuff about intelligence, expecting to helpfully find in there some useful, solid, simple definition of what intelligence is, and that doesn't actually really exist. Um, uh, there's lots of qualities really that um, that come up. When we talk about intelligence, things like making plans, having memories, um, kind of complex problem solving, um, also things like theory of mind, which is the ability to conceptualize mm-hmm. like the individuality and intelligence of others, or um, or just the conceptualization of the self, which I talk about in the book quite a lot as the mirror test. Right. Um, you know, so there's all these different qualities, 
and you most definitions of intelligence really are a kind of grab bag of these things but there's no settled kind of single metrical definition and the result of that they're connected is that you know most of the time when people talk about intelligence they really just mean what people do um and so everything else kind of gets measured on that yardstick it's 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 what it's why our main obsession with ai is the production of what commonly gets called like artificial general intelligence i.e an intelligence that's like a human um kind of fully intelligent ai is always conceptualized as basically human level or of course superhuman in some way um and also it really colors our thinking about um other uh beings uh, everything else we share the planet with which we spend our whole time testing to see how much it is like the human in various ways and as a result we miss out on so much that's actually interesting and useful and important about it um and 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 the second part of that is that you know thinking about all these multiple forms of intelligence and ways of thinking about intelligence and potential metrics or qualities of intelligence it really became clear how limited actually existing ai is like the the programs we most the mostly things like machine learning and um which which are really just really really complicated computer programs there's not very much that's intelligent about them unless you believe as i kind of came to do that intelligence is really in the doing of it um which we may maybe we can get into but it just it, it became really startlingly obvious looking at you know, a whole range of actual applications of AI in, in society and in the world at large at present, that they represent a very narrow idea of what intelligence is, which in the book I call corporate intelligence, um, which is an intelligence that's completely obsessed with kind of profit and loss, winning and losing, dominating its own narrow field in order to produce quite a narrow definition of what counts as success within that field. Um, it, it basically reduces any anything really to a, a, right. a kind of game right. to be won or a problem to be solved, um, preferably at kind of maximum profit and at maximum kind of superiority and domination. Um, and that basically, you know, is the kind of way that that corporations think, uh, or that you know, very wealthy or very business orientated people think. But it's a very very narrow way of thinking indeed. But it is the way in which we are building most software and and most things that we call ai as software in the present moment which just seemed to me to be again just like an incredible lack of imagination about what about what it (laughs) what it could be i want to go back to this idea of intelligence as doing and um sort of the the relationships here and so what you do in the book is you sort of look at all of these natural forms of intelligence, trees, birds, animals, uh, plants. And there's this word that comes up again in the book, the German word umwelt. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and how that sort of has helped shape a lot of this new understanding of intelligence that you start to lay out in the book. Yeah, so so the umwelt is not the same as intelligence. It's better sort of thought of as a kind of worldview or a perception or an awareness of the world. But the, what's key about it is that, you know, you can apply it in all of these extraordinary complex ways. Um, the guy who, who, who kind of coined the term Jakob von Uskul, um, uh, and, and several of his kind of followers use the, the, the most common example of the kind of most simple form of this is, is that of a tick as in like the small biting insect. Um, right, uh, but right. the tick has, I think it's three senses essentially. Um, 
that its entire perception of the world is composed out of these three things, uh, which is the smell of butrylic acid, uh, which is which is the kind of pheromone or chemicals given off by basically warm-blooded animals um the temperature of blood um it can sense temperature in a very limited range but mostly the temperature of warm-blooded animals um and uh and it can it can feel uh in limited ways particularly in ways that allow it to navigate around kind of skin grasses hairs that kind of stuff right so it has these incredibly three narrow things of, of smell uh touch and um and temperature range um but out of that, it, its whole world blooms, right? That's its entire conception of the world. That is its umwelt. It's, it's its own particular perspective on the world that gives it its entire awareness and allows it to live its particular life world. Um, but the the thing about the umwelt is it's, also, it's it's unique to every single individual because it's also influenced by your by your particular environment and by your experiences and so on and so forth, um, and it also you know it overlaps right and the, the when I get very interested is the point at which that tiny tiny umwelt which you can give to anything right plants have an umwelt they sense the sun they sense the right, moisture of soil right. around them uh, animals have it in all these various forms you you can think about it as a as a way not to understand what it is like to be a bat, for example, which is a famous essay by Thomas Nagel in which he imagine tries, you know, tries to imagine right. what it would be like to be another creature. It's not about imagining what it was like to be another creature, but acknowledging that there is something that it is like to be that creature, right? It has an awareness. It has a perspective on the world. It has a being in the world. Um, and once you start to think about it as everything is having these umbrellas, everything having its own beinghood, that changes for me our relationships with them totally, because because you can start to imagine them as as their own separate beings who share a world with us, and with whom, on some level, we can engage with or imagine ourselves engaging with. One of the ways in which I used the term umwelt, uh, that actually kind of how I started using it before I kind of started thinking about non-human creatures of various kinds, was that I applied it to technology. Um, in particular, I was, I was doing a project around self-driving cars where I was essentially attempting to build my own self-driving car. Um, not the full thing, but kind of all the sensors and software that would go into one. And, uh, and the result of that was I started to understand, you know, what is the umwelt of, of this machine? Um, because it has sensors. Um, like it sees the world through various ca cameras and sensors, both kind of, you know, optical cameras, but also LiDAR kind of range-finding point cloudy type stuff. Um, and also, you know, it knows how fast it's moving. It knows where it is, um, and it's and it's building a, a sense of its own environment from the information it's constructing from its cameras and maps and so on and so forth. So this, the self-driving car, this piece of technology, has an umwelt. And thinking about how it has an umbrella allowed me to do some things that I didn't really expect when I started out on that project, which was to, 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 to interact with it in unexpected ways. Um, one of the things that I did as a result of that project was that I designed a thing that I call, half-jokingly, the, the autonomous trap, which was a trap for a self-driving right. car, which involved surrounding it with a, a solid line and then a dashed line, like road markings, that produce a no-entry uh, symbol but a no entry road marking that's looped all the way around the car so that once it enters, it can't leave, um, which is kind of a mean thing to do. But it was it was actually specifically about finding this point of overlap in our own umwelts. Because as an artist, I wanted to be able to show people what I was doing. So I needed to make something that's that was visually accessible to humans and also to the machine. And so this 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 dash dotted dash and, and solid line is is a point at which our umwelts overlap. 
And so it's a point at which we can, you know, interact and have relations. What was really striking to me about the book, and especially after uh, reading New Dark Age, your previous book, and every interview that I listened <laughs> to you and prepare, preparing for this, the interviewer said the same thing. And so I know you've heard this before, how grim New Dark Age is. And then, you know, Ways of Being is, is a much more optimistic book, but not in a naive way at all. And it's it, what struck me about it is that it was not Ludditism at all. It was not a turning away from these things, but a, a sense of how can we reinvent them? How can we coexist with both the, the more than human world and this technological world? And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. How did thinking about Umwelt, how did thinking about the these more than human intelligences change your own relationship to technology to what we culturally call artificial intelligence well there's um I mean, the first thing is yeah the, the new dark age is a, is a pretty bleak book and um <laughs> you know i i always say as well that I, when i before i wrote that i always really wanted to write a book about the internet like i always thought i'd write a book about <laughs> the internet and i always thought it would be a book about how great the internet is um but i started writing that book uh, between Brexit and the Trump election. And it was very clear in that moment right. that that was not the thing to write or a useful thing to think at that particular point in time. And so what New right. Dark Age became was a was an attempt at an accounting for where we were. Um, just a solid, clear-eyed statement of the place that we were in and the, you know, the ways in which our technologies were interacting with the world around us and with us and, and, and what was being produced as a result of that, with also a very clear intention to not try and produce solutions for this or not to come up with like right. smart answers to it. Um, that wasn't what I was trying to do. And in fact, I, I think that the, the desire to do that is part of the problem. Um, that was kind of part of the mm. New Dark Age theory as well. Um, but um you know and so I, so i did that and i i wrote a i wrote a grim book um and uh you know a great book by the way like thank i you. really loved the book i mean was, i'm very fond heavy. of it as well but i know it's not an easy read um uh but you know following it having done that um not just for readers but really for myself uh i had to think about okay right. well you know what what follows this like how do you think beyond this uh, again, not trying to look for solutions, just trying to be clear-eyed about where we are and to think what is the next thing to kind of look for. And I didn't go about that directly, as I say, as a kind of solutions-based thing. But at the same time, well, also one of the things in New Dark Age that became very clear to me, and I think to a lot of, res resonated with a lot of readers as well, was the climate aspects of, of the technological mm -hmm. situation. Um, you know, for that book, only a very small amount of which I actually put into the book, I learned a lot more about the climate than I already did. And that's not a fun thing to do in the present moment. And so right. it, it reiterated in me a um, desire to work on climate related research and work. And so in the last few years, I've reoriented the whole of my practice, not just my writing around the environment and ecological issues. Um, but I wanted to bring to that, you know, what I knew already, you know, I think I maybe know a few things about technology in the world that that might be applicable here and not approaching it as a, as a kind of complete newbie or as this kind of terra nullius. Um, and so I've been trying to think of ways in which to accommodate the technology with, with ecological thinking. And the result is ways of being and various other bits of work. Um, mm. uh, and And that has been very powerful to me in the sense that, you know, writing New Dark Age depressed me, I can assure you, more than any of the readers. Um, and um, 
and and particularly put me into a state that I now recognise as that is being recognised, I think more broadly, is what people are calling climate trauma, um, which is the sense of really quite serious depression and helplessness that we can find ourselves in when we start to consider the situation that we're in. Um, But doing this work and writing this book was also my way of working through that trauma, Uh, not to resolve it, but to be able to to, to integrate it and and make it useful and work with it in some way. and and the final the final part is also that um you know there's resonances that i only really realized after completing sometime after completing ways of being um uh the main one of which is is a concept that crops up very strongly in both books which is which is essentially dealing with the unknown you know one of the things i talk about in new dark age a lot is um the the fact that when dealing with contemporary complex networked technologies we are often in a situation in which we do not and cannot know the full ramifications of the situation we're in. And that can be a really terrifying and destabilizing thing. Right. Uh, and it's one of the main kind of effects of modern complex technology uh, and our, our, our civilization at large, um, not just from technology as well, but it's a, it's a major driver of that. Um, but, you know, in, in ways of being, I realized I'd found a, a, a larger more interesting, more fulfilling and generative way to talk about and think about the unknown um, as the unknown is something that exists outside ourselves as individual humans or even as a, as a species, but is nevertheless alive and living in the world and something that we can look to if we don't try to understand it in the same kind of dominating solutions-based way that I looked at technology in the last book, but simply as a, you know, a force around us in the world that is living and vital and powerful um that uh that is unknowable to us and that's okay um because it's something that we can talk to and listen to as well i want to use that to sort of connect this to my work and my background in design for a second i'm just i'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this i know you're not a designer but i think so much of your work is design adjacent Um, i have been adjacent to many designers as well um uh, right that's that's right Um, You know, you mentioned earlier this idea that a lot of um, what we call artificial intelligence is really just a kind of corporate intelligence. It's a sort of capitalistic, dominating, solutions-based, profiteering uh, sort of mode, uh, you know, of thinking. And, And that really resonated with me because I've been thinking and talking a lot about with my students and with with colleagues about this idea of human-centered design and the problems with with this notion of human-centered design. And one of the things I've been saying is that maybe there's no such thing as human-centered design. What we call human-centered design is actually corporation-centered design. Um, You know, it's really a way, it's not how to make something as easy as possible for the user. It's how to make something as easy as possible for the user in service of buying a product, more, their attention, you know, all of these other things. If, you know, if, if, if Facebook was using human-centered design, then, then it would be designed so people wouldn't be using <laughs> Facebook. You know what I mean? And the second part of that is that does human-centered design overlook all the more than human aspects? Should we actually be thinking about ecology-centered design, for example, or or climate-centered design, or multi-generational-centered design or something? And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on all of this thinking and work you've done in a design context, and if, if any of, of this sort of resonates with you. Yeah, I mean, it resonates with me hugely, but I'm not sure I can express it much better than you've just done. Um, <laughs> okay, I, I definitely okay. definitely agree with you that, that the discipline of human-centered design, when it's performed, you know, 
for a corporate product, then ultimately the, the goal of that design is not to produce the best outcomes for the humans. Um, it's to produce the best outcomes for the for the product, um, which but that's, you know, but the, it's probably a bit of a stretch to, to say that that's what human centered design is at any point claiming to do. Um, it is making it easier right. for humans to do a particular task um, rather than the engineers or the designers, you know, but it's not, it, it, I don't think it necessarily makes any loftier claims than that, which is not to say that we shouldn't try for loftier claims. Um, because yeah, as you, as you very well put, put it, um, most of the things that um, most of the products we use all the time are designed to make certain parts of human lives easier and there's always a cost to that in some level there's there's a huge cost to us most right. of the time i mean most of the stories i tell in new dark age are stories of how um things are hidden within software systems to make them easier right. apparently in certain ways while externalizing or obscuring you know the costs of them the classic example of this is kind of you know kind of gig economy ordering apps you know where, right. where you know right. just pressing that little button on your screen sets in motion all these other humans whose whose labor and lives you don't have to think about it just it just hides all of that right. stuff away um and so that's obviously you know easier for the for that the one particular human at the center of it and probably for whoever's getting the money from the app um but is is not centered around the lives of everybody else who's affected by it um but when you start to think more more broadly, uh, then you have to start thinking about the yeah the 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 the, the lives of really everyone uh, who's involved in that, which includes non humans. Um, so you have to start thinking about, for example, the the energy costs of the of the app you're designing. Right. You know what are the um, you know what are what are the choices you've made within a piece of software, for example, that actually. Um, uh you know have these massive external costs um i've you know in, just for myself i've become annoyingly you know aware of this to the point where it's affected even the tiny tiny bits of design that i do a really simple example is uh, right. you know looking at um you know building a website recently and i made like a really cool animation for the for the background right, of right. the thing uh, and then was like well actually that's just like hyped my cpu use which is means my my machine and any machine that accesses this and the servers are going to be using more power yeah. and uh, you know and therefore requiring higher more electricity generation blah 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 which results in more co2 emissions blah 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 like can i justify having that cool animation no um and now obviously the world right. isn't going to be saved if we all stop doing cool animations, but there is a really fascinating growing, you know, um, design methodologies around low energy use, um, yeah. reducing all of these costs as much as we can. And a truly ecologically centered design would follow as much of those principles as possible because we should be using less energy. Uh, and, and when you think in those terms, when that's the number one priority, um, that of course changes your whole kind of design stack um, or your, you know, your whole, your right. whole process um, because you have to really rethink where the costs of what you're doing actually accrue and can you justify them? And, and it's pretty much immediately obvious that you can't for a lot of things. And that, that, that really changes everything. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's such a great example. I can't tell you how many times I've been in that same position uh, where it's like, oh, I should just cut out all these lines of code in, in this website because this would... This would I, I, I think it's also worth pointing out that those do, those, you know, but many of those do accord with principles of human con uh, human central, human centric design and also with accessibility. Right. Um, that actually they have, they right. also have a right. whole bunch of benefits because, because a really key point about 
ecologically centered design, if we can call it that, but also ecological thinking in general, is that this is not a zero sum game in which we just basically cut right. benefits for humans, but therefore it, it's okay or a bit better or slightly better for someone else, you know, or something else somewhere else. Right. Um, but actually that the benefits accrue to everybody when, when ecological relations are taken uh, as the first and most important, you know, point of any design or thinking. And I think that goes back to, to this idea that this isn't Ludditism. This isn't like anti-design in some way, but it's sort of rethinking that relationship um, in, in a more than human context. You talking about the, the website animation, I, I first started following your work and was aware of your work probably 10, 10 11 years ago um, when you were sort of working under what you were calling the new aesthetic. You were doing uh, the, the dronestagram and kind of a lot of infrastructural type work. Um, and so, so I, I came to your work first and for a long time, purely through your visual art, your installations, those projects. Um, but you, you have been writing um, through that whole period. And it seems to me that writing has become much more central in your practice, or at least the production of books, um, perhaps. And I'm, I'm curious about the, the intersection of the writing and the art making. And I don't mean to make too much of a separation there, but I'm wondering how those sort of come together as, as research, as prototyping, you mentioned the self-driving cars, a, a sort of key insight. How do you see this process of sort of uh, art making and writing fitting together for you? I mean, as you say, and it's a, it's a, it's a boring answer, but for me, they just really aren't that separate. Um, um, like I've always written and I've always, I've also always wanted to be a writer and I'd be very happy just doing that, frankly. But, um, but, but, but mm. I, I always say that and then I have to do the big but, which is that a lot of the ideas come out of out of other aspects, out of making something that was that my next a thought yeah. or giving a okay. talk as well, which is a big part of my practice, which I don't write for quite often. You know, most of my talks are, uh -huh. are they're not scripted. And so I'll find myself saying something on stage that I didn't expect, you know, which is because right. you're activating different bits of the brain. And I think I think that's probably the key bit there that, um, you know, doing different tasks, whether that's writing language, whether it's writing code, um, which is an entirely different, you know, practice, um, whether right. it's right. whether it's building a box um, or a tool a practical physical thing you know or whether it's whether it's trying to do something visually um that you know you you activate different bits of the brain and different things fall into place as a result and um and that's always that's always just how i've worked that the images and, and words kind of accompany themselves though though for me writing is always somewhat central in the fact that I always end up writing like some huge essay about something that's supposed to be a visual artwork, um, because it's because one aspect of it is always insufficient for me. Um, I have huge admiration for artists who don't do that, and there's no requirement on artists to do that at all. Um, and it's one of the great things about visual art is that it, it escapes language in various ways, uh, but it's not really what I do. Um, uh, yeah, that that's just that's just how how I how I tend to go about it. Um, and, and as an addendum to that, I, you know, for me, the practical qualities are really, really important. So much of my knowledge, as I understand it, is gained from actually making or doing things, not just writing about them. And that, you know, that that's, for example, that's that's totally crucial to to my technological thinking. In that, I I don't I don't think I could write 
or should write about technology in the way that I do, were I not engaged in trying occasionally and very badly to actually make uh, it. Um, right. Because because right. unless you do that, you don't understand how it works. And that's really fundamental. Right. Like in, in, unless you can make something yourself, you have a very limited understanding of how it functions. And, and this, this extends to everything. Um, you know, I, I'm currently doing a lot more physical stuff in the last couple of years, by which I mean building stuff from like small regenerative energy tools and toys all the way up to building uh, buildings. And, you know, that totally changes my relationship to the things around me and therefore changes my thinking, um, both in what I understand right, to be possible, right. um, but also how those things shape me and the world around me. Uh, th this is probably also, uh, you said that was going to be a boring answer. I actually don't <laughs> think it was. And so this might, this might also be a boring, boring answer, but can you talk a little bit more about this idea of like, what is sort of driving the ideas you are, you know, are you, you're reading and writing about these ideas and then, you know, you feel like you have to sort of enact this or embody this through the art making, or are you sort of making these physical structures and then thinking, oh, I need to write it. I, there, there's an idea here that I can write about, you know, you know, how, how does that sort of exchange happen? Yeah. I mean, it's, talk it's, about that it's, it's, um, it's, it's, I know it's like, to, uh, you know, the, the, boring but not answer is always it's just it's just where my curiosity takes me but but it's not just me it's the world you know um right. i wanted to write that book about the internet and i've always wanted to write about the internet because i love the internet because i grew up with the internet because i was born in 1980 and like you know the internet and me were adolescents at the right. same time through the 90s and you know i have this kind of particular experience of it because of my age and my socioeconomic position and various other things that made it a part of my life that I you know also wanted to engage with as more than just a viewer or receiver and it's probably that that bit of like mm -hmm. you know just wanting to understand and know more about these things so I could do interesting things with them myself um, I think that's that's really the key, right. and 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 for me, all of that comes out of, out of, you know, an internet history basically, in terms of the fact that, yeah. you know, the the internet that I grew up with was this amazing kind of patchwork tool where you could, you know, view source on any web page and copy and yep. bits out of it and build your own, and that was a very natural way to behave on the early internet. Um, which is, you know, without being old man yeah. shouting at clouds, has largely disappeared um, as it's become a kind of both a corporate product and a kind of specialized professional discipline. Totally. Um, yep. But I, but I apply, apply that to kind, kind of everything. Um, but, it, but also now as a result of a conscious kind of thesis, um, which is that, you know, we, in order to have any kind of agency in a complex world defined by the the things that we build or mostly by the things that others build you we have to be able to interact with them as more than kind of passive receivers of them um uh, and you know so much of my work is not about building or doing a thing because i want to do it professionally or even because i want to produce a better version of it or um you know or because i think i'll come up with some magic solution or better version of it but simply because knowing how a thing works gives me a kind of standing in the world um, that allows me to do more, do other things. Um, there's, there's the word that comes up in both books a lot is, is agency. And agency is simply the, the feeling 
that one knows what is going on in one's life, <laughs> that one has some right. say in what happens in one's life, and that you're capable of kind of making decisions that matter about one's life. Um, right. And right. most of us lack that in most of our lives um, for a bunch of reasons. But, um, but you know, it's particularly apparent when you confront new technology or when you confront the climate uh, emergency, um, you really become aware of where your level of agency is. And the first result of that is, you know, long before we talk about taking action, it's about regaining this sense of agency, which is really a psychological thing that is so, so important, a, a, an absolutely necessary precursor to any meaningful action. And most of what I do for myself and hopefully for others in kind of workshops or collective work is, um, is building agency. Um, which is which is largely building building skills, but not not necessarily the skills that you will employ in future action, but just the the psychological basis on which to be able to act, um, uh, and 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 you know and and a place to be able to hope from I think as well, uh, you know not really being interested in just a kind of naive optimism, but building a base on right. which one can actually build plausible plausible hope. That makes a lot of sense to me, and it actually strangely really <laughs> helps me understand your work more broadly. A, a word that I wrote down in my notes in thinking about you and, and this conversation was infrastructure, and that so much of your work is about exposing the infrastructure, making us aware of the infrastructure of the systems that you know sort of govern so much of our lives. And I think the the step after exposing the infrastructure is agency yeah. you know you know once Absolutely. you sort of see that you know gives you that agency i'm i have one more sort of question about um about the kind of your 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 art making mm -hmm. um something that that i really admire in in your work is is the range of mediums that you work in you do installations you do videos you write books uh you know you do sort of digital coding projects you did a, a great audio series for the for the bbc how does how does sort of um working across mediums help you understand these things in different ways or how do you sort of think about uh the 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 artifact or the 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 outcome or the medium of this research well i mean I, th I think maybe I sort of answered that already when I was talking about the fact that for me these are all just aspects of the same like processes. But uh, but 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 I think the broader point maybe is that um, is, is about this ability to learn them. Um, that is as part mm. of agency, part of much much else. Um, there's a as a absolutely classic Ursula K. Le Guin quote, which crops up in in Ways of Being, and which I base much of my life on um which which comes from a a short piece she wrote about um the nature of technology um she in which she describes um uh, technology as as the like human interface with the world it's the, you know it's the stuff we build in order to interface with the world which is a fairly good solid standard definition but being a sort of she takes that substantially further which is what she does she points out that like all of these things are products they were all made by people um like that's the other definition of technology made stuff made by people and and so and all of those people learned how to do it um and actually that's what technology is it's something that we can learn to do um and it doesn't matter what it is like obviously i'm massively privileged in a bunch of ways that i have uh, you know a certain background uh, and uh, a certain 
I live in a certain part of the world and I've arranged my life in certain ways and, and I've been very lucky in all the ways I managed to do that in order to be able to do the things I do. But I fundamentally believe that given the right opportunities, anyone can learn to do what I do right. because I've learned to do it. And this goes all the way back to like, you know, coding projects. I'm a terrible coder. Like I, I know like half of like yeah. three or four programming languages and most of what I make is made <laughs> by copying and pasting stuff off the web still, which frankly is how most coders do it. Um, but I do understand how it works, you know, because I've, I have learned. And it's the same, like I'm a terrible carpenter, um, but I built, I've built quite large structures. Um, and I can, and yeah, I've, like yeah. from scratch, um, one of my real heroes is a guy called um, Walter Siegel. Um, he was a, a German architect living in Britain in the kind of 1930s, 40s, 50s. And um, Siegel um, developed a mode of self-build housing that was designed specifically for uh, people with no experience of carpentry whatsoever. Um, he said of it that anyone mm. can do this. If you, if you can drill a hole and cut in a straight line, you can do this. And I can't even cut in a straight line um, and I can do it. Um, and what he, but what he saw in particular was that there were a lot of people uh, in the UK at the time in the 1970s on social housing waiting lists. So they were waiting for state given accommodation, long mm. waiting list for this. And there was also a bottleneck in housing building uh, that was you know, dominated by large corporate house builders uh, who would only build on particular sites and blah, blah, blah. So basically he went to his local council and said, look, I can teach anyone to build a house if you give us some land. And he persuaded the council to give them some land in South London mm. in the 1970s. And a bunch of people built houses um, and they built them themselves for themselves with no experience you know famously and you know in spare time from the regular jobs like single parents did this uh, retired people did this um and and it, and his methodology was designed as i say for people without he took that into account so it's based on a a particular um kind of framework for building that's based on a modular grid that's based on the standard sizes of things uh -huh. like insulation panels so you don't need to do a lot of cutting on site you right. just put everything in the right place right and produces right. a really simplified planning process that anyone can follow and you can do it you can learn to build a house not just learn to build a house you can build a house anyone can build a house um uh, you know but a lot of thought went into producing a method that not just worked but that was kind of teachable and that fitted into people's lives and that was understandable by people you know um and that's 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 really you know powerful and fascinating to me the absolute belief that anyone can learn to do this um you know that these are not skills they're just not skills that one can't learn that's the definition of, of a skill right. as well as a technology it's something you can develop um and that right. and you know that's still central to all of my work um that there's, there's only two or three things i've made and i really dislike them intensely for this as artworks where I don't feel like I really made it because I worked with someone else and they did bits that I couldn't uh, do. Or I didn't understand. And, and as a result, I understood less at the end. Right. And this happened particularly with a couple of AI projects where I basically hired people to do the AI bit. Oh, interesting. And as a result, the projects weren't very good um, because I couldn't bring the kind of critical thinking that I hope I bring to my other projects because I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, it's the old, it's the old, art, you know, great artists mix their own paint argument, which unless you, you're, you're conversant in your materials, you don't understand what the possibilities of them are. Um, but anyone can learn to do it. I listened to a conversation you had with Clara Evans to prepare for this. And you mentioned at the beginning of that, just very briefly, that you were writing some more fiction or that you were interested in writing fiction. And I'm curious 
a how that is going huh. um and sort of how you're thinking about that and then also what fiction can do in this space that this other work that you're doing maybe cannot or or kind of the the, the power of fiction in a way that uh you know journalism or criticism you know maybe can't can't do um well i'll start by saying that fiction is something that i'm trying to learn how to do and not very well right and i'm not very happy with any of my efforts so far uh, okay. and it's really something that i struggle with a lot um i don't know how to do plot or characterization or, or, right, or, or, right, or right, you know right. speech and so i mostly end up with like single characters having internal monologues and not going anywhere which doesn't really yeah. amount to yeah. good fiction um <laughs> but i'm but but i've always been a huge fiction reader and a fiction lover so you know i it's it's another it's a thing i want to learn how to do um so why do i want to learn to do it which is the interesting question um it's really surprising to me because i have a lot of i have a lot of problems with fiction particularly in design in fact um because you know mm. one of the design scenes i've been around a lot is what's commonly known as design right. fiction um uh, which has a lot of problems, you know, attached to it. It has some really wonderful stuff as well. I think you know, there's so many good ideas in there. Um, but as a as a as it's expanded, it's also kind of infected a lot of stuff with um, the natural tendency within a lot of yeah. design to yeah. make stuff that looks cool, essentially. Um, you know, and that's just that's just what happens. And I don't want to bash anyone or anything in particular for it. But uh, but I distrust it. Um, I get it. And I particularly distrust its quality of um, uh, it, its sort of innate belief that if you make something, it will make the future it describes more attractive. Even though a lot of design fiction and other mm -hmm. things like this it tend to be a little, and science fiction in general tends to be a little dystopic. Um, uh, even right. it's you know it's utopian best it, it it implies that like by we can sort of design our way into a future by create by imagining what that future will be like and sort yeah. of this kind of strange attractor yeah. effect will kind of pull us towards it and i think maybe it actually does the opposite right. it kind of forecloses certain futures all of which is to say like um you know in my work i always try to avoid like prognostication prediction and yeah. um and anything really future oriented like i really always try and talk about the present and the situation that we're actually in um but I have I have a project that came out of Ways of Being that's called um, Server Farm, which is a a, oh, yeah. a project yeah. where I'm trying to think what it would be look like to put a bunch of those ideas into practice. It's particularly ideas around um, non digital biological computation, um, and also political ideas about different relations between humans and non humans, and what more equal relationships between species and beings would actually look like. So, what would it mean mm -hmm. to build a biological mm -hmm. computer, like some kind of computational thing with right. other beings both as the the structure of that computation but also as beings that are worthy of kind of care and respect and have their own agency and so on and so forth and that's a really interesting and very nascent and very long-term project but one of the first things i found myself doing yeah. about it was writing speculative science fiction about it which i really didn't expect because it oh, goes against all of those principles um yeah it, it made a kind of sense because it it was a way of, of a different way of thinking about what this thing might be and what it might look like and using certain, again, I'll just use say different areas of the brain, like the imagination in, right. you know, as, as an, as a tool in exactly the same way I would use a spade, <laughs> like just to dig out a different right. aspect of right. this thing. Um, 
it's really not about trying to predict, but really just trying to use the full spectrum of tools to bring a thing into yeah. being. And some of yeah. that is narrative and yeah. some of it is, um, uh, you know, imagining it in different contexts and that might be a different context in time, um, you know, in order to just have as many possible viewpoints on this thing in order to understand it better. It leads in very nicely to the last question that I used to, to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now. Uh, at the moment I'm reading, oh, I'm reading a whole bunch of really great stuff. I'm reading about 10 books at once. I'm in a real like mental like nice, accumulation nice. phase uh the book i have right in front of me right now so i'll just give it because i'm loving it so much is alexis pauline gums undrowned uh black feminist lessons from marine mammals um where she writes about um she writes this kind of series of meditations about um other relationships we might have with other beings specifically marine mammals um talking simply about you know how they breathe how they live in the world and what we might learn from it in a really beautiful way that that manages to avoid a, a large amount of the kind of anthropomorphism or anthropocentrism that usually enters these debates while retaining what's important which is love and care um i'm also reading um a brilliant book uh called pollution is colonialism and i don't have the author's name in front oh. of me so your listeners will have to google it but it's called pollution is colonialism um which is uh, a book about plastics and pollution but ties them into questions of social justice and land relations and relationships in general that I'm finding to be incredibly fascinating and powerful. Uh, just like how we think about the materials we use, what the actual effects are, mm -hmm. and how we and how we write about them as well. Because a lot of the book is about the nature of citation and and who we give credence and oh, credit to and how our ideas are constructed upon largely upon who we're thankful to, which I think is a very powerful notion. Um so I'm reading a lot of stuff that's like that, that's like that sort of theory in these worlds of ecology, and I find that to be very powerful and interesting because it's practical theory. It's not just kind of the ideas. It's like how do we actually use these and think about these? Um, and I'm also reading a lot of books about environmental and ecological history to see how we got here. Um, I just finished a great book um, called Imperial Mud, uh, which is about the enclosure of the fens in England which is where between the kind of 15th and 18th century, large areas of wetland were drowned, uh, sorry, were dried out rather, um, to make agricultural farmland, which involved the destruction of huge communities, but also the loss of incredible areas of biodiversity um, and were also precursors to British colonialism elsewhere. So these things are always deeply, deeply interrelated. And I'm trying to learn more about that at the moment. Your book is called Ways of Being, Animals, Plants, Machines, The Search for Planetary Intelligence. And it is a book that will will be rattling around in my brain for a long time. And I think we'll, you know, we'll be, I, I, I will be making sense of it for a long time and kind of finding finding new new applications for it. It was, it was such a great book. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for being on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This episode was recorded on November 9th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.